I'm going to ask you a question regarding the Old Testament. Uh, have you ever seen a movie that has scenes in it where you, you look at the scene and you go, now what in the world did that happen for? Why is he doing that? Why is this like, why did he say that? Or why are they going there? Confusing movies. They don't make any sense. They seem almost like jumbled up, right? Um, as if it's maybe the wrong movie. Did I walk into the wrong theater? Uh, and then the end of the movie, what happens typically, hopefully what happens, is what happens? Well, it makes sense now, right? You see the end, and you go, oh, now I get why he went there. Oh, now I get why, well, okay. And oftentimes what you'll probably do if you like the movie is you'll buy it. You'll, buy it, you'll watch it again knowing, now I know how it's, now I see the path. I see how it's going. I see the trajectory of, this, of these confusing scenes. You'll see the, the middle parts rightly because you know the end. You know the whole, right? Oftentimes, I think, we can be prone uh, to read the Old Testament that way, uh, that these are all just random stories, they're all jumbled up, yeah, there's some people doing this, there's some people doing that, I don't really know what's going on, um, and we often are prone to think, well, they're, they're mostly moral lessons, I should be like David, that's the main thing, is I should be like David, or I should be like Boaz, I want to be, I am like him, so I want to be like him. I should be good, I shouldn't be naughty, or whatever we want to do. And oftentimes we do that, and we actually we rob the Old Testament of what it actually is supposed to be, when instead the entire Old Testament is supposed to be about Jesus, right? Not just the prophecies, not just about not just, not just Isaiah, not just Jeremiah, but even Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Ruth is all about Christ, right? And you're probably wondering, how do you know that's quite the lofty state? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead on the road to Emmaus, he met some disciples. And I want to read to you what he did in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 47. This is what Jesus did. This is remarkable. And beginning with Moses, so Old Testament, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, which is a way of saying the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Also in John 5, Jesus says that Moses wrote of me, see thing. So Jesus picks up your Old Testament and he says, you see all that? That's about me. So is that. So is that. Oh, that's definitely about me. He goes through the whole thing. It's all about me. So we know that when you read this book, that's supposed to be about Christ. Reading the Old Testament with, while having the New Testament, it's kind of like walking to a dark room. And you go, okay, where's the furniture? That looks like a couch. It looks like a coffee table. And the New Testament, like turning on the lights. Oh, now I see that is a couch. That is a, now I get it. That's how you should read the Old Testament. That's how the New Testament works. It turns the lights on, so to speak. So the way that I should preach the Old Testament, the way that you should read the Old Testament, we should be able to read it in a certain way that if I were to preach this sermon or if you were to teach a lesson in a Jewish synagogue, they would not agree with you. That should be the goal, Right? If the Jews agree with us, oh, we agree with everything that Cale just preached, then I failed my sermon, right? Because we believe that this is about Jesus. They don't believe that. If he's the Messiah, then we should read it differently than Jews do, right? We, we should still read it correctly, but we should understand it's about Christ. So what are some helpful ways that while you're reading the Old Testament, the things that you should think about? I want to give you a couple of questions to ask that can maybe help you do this. I think it's very practical, very simple in a sense. Uh, so when you're reading the Old Testament, any book, any text, you should ask things like this. How is Jesus like this? Or how is he not like this? 
How does he fulfill this? Or how does, it, how, how does this expect him to come do this better? Uh, probably the best question I've ever been taught to ask is, how is Jesus the hero of this passage? How is he the hero? Because he's always the hero. How is he in it right here? That's what we should be asking ourselves. And in Ruth 2, we, we see this very clearly. That Jesus is extremely brightly shown in Ruth chapter 2. Today, I hope to do a good job of showing you that the author of Ruth shows us that the greatness of Christ is in three images, three scenes in the story of Ruth and Boaz. If, if you remember, uh, what happened in the book of Ruth so far is Ruth and Naomi, I'm sorry, Ruth and her, or Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, they travel because there's a famine. Uh, her two sons, uh, Naomi's two sons, marry Moabites, who are non-Israelites, right? And that one of them is Ruth, and one is Orpah. And ten years, of, ten years go by, there's no children, and they die. So this chapter one was ten years long. Then they go back to Bethlehem. Hey, there's food in Bethlehem. Let's go back. The famine's gone. Let's go back, right? And chapter two now is what happens is it's Naomi and her daughter-in-law named Ruth. They're poor. And this whole chapter, chapter one was 10 years long. Chapter two is like one day. So it's, this is a very important day for us to look at very carefully. So first, let's look at verses one through seven. This is the great contrast. We're going to get a picture of both Ruth and Boaz. And there's a great contrast going on. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. So you have both characters very quickly introduced. You have Boaz, who is called a, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, and you have Ruth, who is a Moabite. The author is reminding us again... Boaz is a worthy man of the Israelites. He's, the, he's, he's an Israelite. Ruth is not. She's, a, she's an outcast. She's a foreigner. Remember, she's, he's, she's reminding us. She's a Moabite. Don't forget that. This is important. Okay? He's telling us again. So let's, let, let's unpack who Ruth is. Ruth is a foreigner. She's a stranger, right? She's not an Israelite. She's, uh, she's born not in a church home, you could say, right? Uh, she didn't have the scriptures. Her, her background is one of uncleanness and idolatry. She was an, a non-Israelite, so she didn't go to vacation Bible school. She didn't go to Christmas Eve church. She didn't do those things. She, she went to her God, right? She was a foreigner. She worshiped an idol, right? Her, back, her background is not favorable. It's actually detestable. It's, ew, I don't want to be anything like that. I don't want, to, I don't, I don't want your background, right? And we, we know from chapter one that Ruth also has some, some more poor things on her rap sheet. She is a widow, She's childless. She's been barren for 10, ten years of no children. So she's very, very outcast. To add to that, she's very poor. She's poor, miserable, barren, and she's a Gentile. So this is the, the worst of the worst. This is as bad as it gets if you're Old Testament. You're poor, you're a widow, you're a woman, and you're not even you're in Israel. You have no one to care for. You're by yourself, and you have no, no sons to help you. None of us should envy Ruth right now, right? Just you see her on the street, just keep walking. Don't look at her, just pass on by. She's scary, just don't look at her kids. Walk away. She's, don't touch her. She, we don't want to deal with her. She's scary, right? That's the point. We know from chapter 1, verse 6, that they're very poor because they came back from after the famine. Verses 2 and 3 tell us, we know they're so poor that Ruth actually goes to glean, or the glean means to pick up, to gather after the reapers and the harvesters. So one commentator explains uh, maybe you don't know what gleaning is. It means to pick up after. But here's what it means. Here's what it looks like uh, in the Old Testament. Here, here's an, uh, a picture of it for you. 
The reaper would grasp, the people who work in the field, would grasp a stalk of grain with their left hand and cut the sickle with their right hand. And they'd pick up an arm load and put it in their arms and they would carry it. However, they would occasionally drop some and that's what they, they would leave behind. They, they had women behind them who would work with them who would say, hey, you give me that big, um, big amount, I'll wrap it up and I'll put it in a bag or we'll carry it. But you, you cut and you grab, you cut and you grab and we'll pick it up after you. In the Old Testament, God had a law for widows and for strangers and for foreigners. In Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, God has a welfare program for non-Israelites. He would say, so uh, at your job, you're told, don't cut corners, right? Don't cut them. Um, God actually says to cut corners. Don't go to the end of your field. Don't cut the whole thing. Leave a portion. Don't do all the work. Leave a section uncut. So people who are poor, who don't have a, a husband, who don't have a family, can walk through and go, hey, hey, there's food here for me. They can pick it and they can eat. And the hope that, Na or that Ruth has is that they would just drop some on the ground and she would go, oh, there's good food. So she's so poor, she's a scavenger, right? She's a welfare program. She has nothing. And verse 7 says that she did this from morning till evening, almost nonstop. She's, she's working almost nonstop to eat. Now, if we're given a picture of Boaz, look at verses 1 through 4 again. He's called many great things. He's called, first his name Boaz means strong. It means like a pillar. Um, Solomon named one of his pillars in the, in the temple Boaz. So it's, it's a pretty big deal. If you're Boaz, you're a strong man, okay? It says that he's a worthy man in the Hebrew word. You might even have something different. It might say great valor or strength or great wealth, perhaps. All, that word means all those things. It means that Boaz, he's a man's man. He's very strong, very wealthy, takes care of himself, good character. He's everything that you want in a, in a guy. That's what you want. Boaz is the man. Everyone has him on their t-shirt. I, I want to be like Boaz when I grow up. Me too. So do I. He's the man. He's, he's from a clan of Naomi's husband, so he's an Israelite who knows the Lord. He owns a field, so he's a worker. He has plenty of resources, including workers, right? He's a godly employer. He walks to his people in verse 4, and he says, The Lord be with you. And if you look at verse 4, it says, Behold. So it, it talks about Boaz, then it says, Behold. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It's hine. It means look. So when the, when the Bible tells you to look, what do you do? You know, look, you know, slow down and look. It's telling you to look at him, right? He blesses people. He blesses his, his workers, right? He's a godly businessman. If you want to find a lot about how a man believes, you should listen to his speech. Listen, what does Boaz believe? Well, look at how he talks. His first words are, the Lord be with you. And they respond, ultimately, and also with you, right? That's how, he, that's how he talks to his employees. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That doesn't just mean foul language, but it means complaining, it means oaths, it means bitterness, it means anger. James 1 says this, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. And this religion, this man's religion is worthless. So Boaz has a true heart. He speaks what is in his heart, which is love for the Lord and obedience. So Boaz sees Ruth coming and he goes, Who's that girl? She's pretty. Look at look what happens. He comes in verse four. Whose young woman is that? Is she single? I sure hope so. Right? This is a love story, guys. Get on with it, all right? 
This is the man, right? You're hoping, please get together. This is beautiful, please, right? You're hoping. He's rich, he's godly, he's a provider, he's respectable. And then they just happen, look at verse 3, they just happen to cross paths. She happened to come to the part belonging to his field, and what does Boaz do? Oh, he just came back from Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? Just happened to come, right? The word happen, it's just the way of saying, this is not just a happening. It didn't just happen by chance, right? Uh, in fields in those days, they didn't have fences. They didn't have barriers. They had typically like landmarks. But if you weren't from there, you wouldn't know whose field is who. So Ruth just goes, I mean, I hope I find him, but I can't guarantee. She just happens to fall in his field. Then Boaz just happens to come by. What great, remarkable timing that is. This is God's sweet providence, right? We saw his hand fall very hard on Naomi and Ruth in chapter 1. And now it's very sweet. Proverbs 16 says this. The lot, or you could say the dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there is nothing random in your life. Even the roll of a dice, this is random, just flip a coin. No, I, the Bible says, no, I actually decide that for you too. It's, it's everything, right? Ruth desired to glean. Boaz just happened to come down. Proverbs 16 again says this, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ruth, Ruth is hoping for just a look. Just, Boaz, just please look at me. Just look, right? I hope you're seeing that there's a greater contrast for us to behold. The condition of all people, of you, naturally, you are like Ruth. You are a Moabite by birth. Spiritually, you are unclean like Ruth was. Once in the Garden of Eden, Adam was near the Lord. He was close, right? When Adam was created, there was no sin. When Adam sinned, what happened? Well, he's, he's booted out of the garden. It's time to go, right? He's driven out of the garden. And because Adam sinned, he represented all of us. We sinned in the garden. So it's kind of like if you're playing a basketball, if you're playing basketball, and your point guard commits a foul, who gets infected by the whole penalty? Well, all of us do. Thanks for the team foul. Thanks for, thanks for slapping the guy's hand, right? But he committed the foul. But we get credit for what he did wrong, right? It's kind of how it works with Adam. Adam sinned, we get the consequence. However, the Bible says even more explicitly that when Adam sinned, you don't just get counted with sin. You actually get counted with guilt because you were there when Adam sinned. Romans 5 says this. Verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all Sin. So we are all born, not just sinful, but we are already all born guilty in Adam. And like Ruth, we are strangers to God. We are cut off. We are separated. We are Moabites at heart. So if God were to evaluate your spiritual condition before you became a believer, what would he think about you? That's a big question to ask, right? Well, if I'm not a Christian, how does God look at me spiritually? Well, typically what we do is, well, I've attended since I was five. Or, I've been attempting to be a lot better lately, Lord. Or, well, at least I'm not as bad as Ruth. I'm not a Moabite after all. I'm born in America. I'm not, not that bad. The Bible is very clear, though, that there's no physical background that can change your spiritual makeup. Those born always attending church and those born always avoiding church have the exact same spiritual condition. We're dead. We're not in God's favor. We are separated. You are all spiritually unclean, you are poor, you are destitute, 
Brothers and sisters, there is no one born worthy to have God's smile, to have God's favor upon. We do not earn that. You can't do enough. You can't gather it. The question is, do you believe this? Do you see yourself before God as a spiritual beggar, as a Moabite, as a widow? Isaiah 59 says this, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You are cut off. But who is this one who has much more fair than us? Who is this stunning Boaz character who is better than Boaz? There is one who is better than Boaz, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the true and better Boaz, right? Jesus is not just a man. He is God. He is the theme of heaven's praises. He is the, the, the delight of the Father. If you look at what he's doing, you say, Boaz, look at Boaz is great. You should see Christ this way, right? He is excellent. You think Boaz is excellent? Jesus is infinitely more. He, his face shines like the sun, the Bible says. He's radiant in glory. He is unendingly beautiful. He is infinitely unfading. Do you ever tell stories and you over-exaggerate? And they go, oh, that movie stank. I thought it was good. Well, I guess I over-exaggerated, right? It is impossible to over-exaggerate the worth of Christ. Do you understand that? You can't go too high because he goes, it's higher still. This is the picture we're, we're being painted here. Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the Father's glory. Angels worship Christ. Samuel Rutherford said it probably the most beautiful way. I love this man. He's been with the Lord for 300-some years, but I love this man. Listen to what he says. Put the beauty of 10,000, thousand worlds of paradise, like the Garden of Eden, into one. Put all trees and all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet... It would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. That's your Christ. Have you ever seen a famous person before in public, like an athlete or an actor or a musician? What do you hope they'll do? Look at me. Look, right? If they look at me, maybe they'll think I'm cool. I, I would just look at me, Right? This is what Ruth's doing. Please, just, I, hope, I hope Boaz just looks at me. This is our only hope, that God would ordain that Christ would look upon us, that that splendid man would look at us in mercy. That's our hope. That's our only shot. And his life, his look upon you can change your eternity, not just change your circumstances of poverty. Number two, great grace. Look at verse 8 through 17. So, Boaz walks in and goes, I won't sing this song, but who's that lady? Who's that? Anyway, and uh, he likes her, right? First, we see that grace seeks. So after seeing her, hearing about her, look, look at Boaz does in verse 8. He goes to Ruth. Now listen, my daughter. So we're assuming when he says that, that Boaz must be older. She must be young. He's calling her my daughter. It's a, it's a term of endearment, but also it does appear that he must be older than she is. And he's sweeter. He's, he's entreating her, right? Verses 8 through 9. He says, don't go anywhere else. Stay on my field. Follow my reapers. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So what does he say? Girl, don't go anywhere. You stay right here. You work in this field. Don't, no one's going to touch you. No one's going to harm you. Just stay here. And if you're thirsty, there's plenty of water. All right? Thank God, he says, don't worry. The teenagers, they won't bother you. They'll stay away. That's a gift to you, right? High schoolers won't bother you, right? 
They won't bother you. Stay over here. And he says to go stay with the other women, probably for comfort. But I also think he's thinking, hope no guy talks to her because she'll get scooped up. So go play with all the girls. Go stay over there where it's safe, right? Then he treats her. He's refreshing. He says, they will draw for you instead of you, a widow, drawing for them. They're going to draw for you. So they're going to treat you like their own. They'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. They'll draw all the water you want. Look at verse 10. She falls on her face in humility, astounded by this favor, right? She cries out in verse 10, I'm a foreigner. What are you, treating, what are you doing this to me? I'm not, I've done nothing. I'm just a foreigner, right? She knows who she is. There's no surprise. And in verse 11 and 12, Boaz responds that it's, it's her faith. It's you forsake everything, forsook everything to follow Naomi. You left everything. You intend to be a widow till death. That's what I'm noticing. He sees her faith. Ruth's taking great risk in her life, and she reaches out to Naomi and clings to her. She actually intends, to, if you look at verses, chapter 1, she actually intends to, if I got to die widow, die widow. I'm, going, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with you. She has great, great trust in Naomi. Likewise, following Jesus requires us to leave behind everything and to cling to him. The Bible says that God notices this type of faith. This is what he desires and delights in. True faith in the Lord actually works. It doesn't just stand and say, oh, I believe. It says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chase after. I'm going to go. This is what the Lord notices. It's something, it's separated from something to him, right? In verse 11, this is how Boaz recounts her faith as he talks about. All that you've done, I've heard. I know everything you've done. Verse 12, he prays a blessing over her because she's taken refuge in the Lord. Though helpless and miserable, she fled to the Lord for refuge. And again in verse 13, Ruth is stunned. I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not even one of your servants. So he goes to her and he goes, don't go anywhere. Just stay. We'll take care of everything. You just stay. And she's like, I'm just, I'm a Moabite. What are you talking to me for, right? Second, grace, grace not only seeks, but grace also serves. Look at verses 14 through 16. This is where this, if we were Israelites, this would be shocking. Okay, I want you to feel the weight of this. Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed these young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So what is Boaz doing? He says, hey, when it's mealtime, don't go sit over there. You come sit with us. Sit with, sit with, sit with my, my family, my servants. Sit with us. She's not even, she's, I mean, just the, this is their first date. Come over here. I don't know anything about you. I, mean, I kind of do, but come over here. Eat the good stuff. He gives, he gives her roasted grain. He, gives her, he serves her the good stuff, right? She eats with the Lord of the harvest. She really does. And Boaz serves her. He invites her. He gives her good food out of his own supply. Instead of her serving him, he serves the widow, the outcast, the Gentile. The greater serves the lesser. She, she, she's even given a doggy bag. Here's some to go. Take it. See ya. Right? This is, this is a drive through It's a pretty good day. Next, Ruth goes to glean. And Boaz, again, verse 15, talks to his servants. Don't bother. As a matter of fact, give her the good stuff. Take out the stuff that we've already pulled and just give it to her. And when she goes to get more stuff, don't bother. Hey, Ruth, that's the good stuff. Let her have it. 
But Boaz, that's, let her have it. I mean, this is just unfair. He's treating her as if she was one of his own, right? Not, 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 not the leftovers, but the good stuff. Don't bother her. Actually, give her extra. We, we did all the work. Give it all to her, right? The Israelite men who labored so hard freely give to this woman, this poor widow. And in verse 17, if you notice, she is there until evening. She's like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to get all the food I can. I'm going to glean as long as I can. It's a lot of grace shown to Ruth. And like Boaz, our Lord graciously seeks sinners who do not approach him. Notice that Ruth desired his gaze, right? I hope you look at me, but she didn't go to him. She just, I just, I hope he looks, but I can't approach the guy. I'm Ruth. I'm a Moabite, right? What caused Ruth to go? What caused her to go? Yes, she was hungry. But brothers and sisters, what caused you to seek the Lord? What was it in your miserable, fallen condition that all of a sudden you would go, I want to know Christ. I want to go to him. That like, like a green blade spring up in dead soil. What is it that made the difference? I want to venture to tell you that it is only the grace of God in your heart that sends you to get more grace. It is not in my heart that I thought, you know what? I got it figured out. I'm going to go. Never. I'm not better than Ruth. I'm not better than any sinner that I know on the street. God didn't work in my heart. I wouldn't desire even grace in the first place. So God even works in the heart beneath the soil. So you want to seek more grace, right? Isn't that kind? God initiates. Just like how Boaz approached Ruth, God initiates towards us. He moves first because we run. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And he didn't say he came to stand. I'll just sit there. Came to seek because we don't seek him naturally by ourselves. Had the son not came and spoken these words of pardon to us, brothers and sisters, we would never come to Christ. There is no distinction. Romans 3, none seek for God. That includes me. If he didn't seek for me, I never would sought for him. We, like Ruth, are foreigners. Christ is our all in all. He is sufficient. He supplies all of our needs. Not only sufficient, but he seeks and he serves sinners. We read this text just for a while ago. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be what? You don't serve him. Jesus, are you being serious right now? I didn't come to be served. But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for now. I once heard John Piper give an illustration about... Uh, you see a sign in a building that says, help wanted, right? And they go, oh, good, they need help, right? Well, he once saw a sign that they had an addition that, that put like the, the letters N-O, no help wanted, right? We, we're fine, we don't need any help, we, we can do just fine. And he said that God is never a employer saying, help wanted. I don't, I, don't, I don't need help. He's never thinking, man, if someone just come help me out here, I could really do the job better. Instead, he serves us. Isn't that stunning? That the king of the world would serve you every single day. Though we're not one of his own, we're a Moabite. He treats you not like one of his servants, but like one of his sons. Every day, Jesus Christ sustains you. He serves you. He continually serves you as you labor in his field. That's a love that should arrest your heart. You should I want to be close. I don't want to leave him. I want to go, why would I want to go anywhere else? I'm going to go closer. I'm not going to leave. There's none like him. Luke 12, 37, one of the most shocking verses, I think, in all the Bible regarding this topic says this. This is Jesus talking. Blessed are those, those servants whom the master himself, 
finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Jesus says, when he comes back, you're not going to, I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to, you sit down and eat. I will serve you. Could you even be served by such a king? Can you fathom what that's even like? Can you imagine any present saying, how about I bring you some food? You sit down. I'll dear dishes. I'll even clean your toilet for you. Just you sit there and wait. Never, never, never. Jesus stoops so low to serve sinners. He satisfies weary souls. He serves weary souls. He welcomes Moabites to come and dine with him. Sinners are entreated to dine as if they're one of his own. I must ask you, is this the Christ that you know? He came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He didn't come for people who think they're good. He satisfies those who know they're not. If you're a Christian this morning, are you weak? He lowers his omnipotent arm to serve you. Are you troubled? His throne room is open to you. Are you sinful? He has royal robes to cover you. Is your situation hopeless? Man, like, what the heck is going to happen now? He works all things well. Do you have burdens? Cast them upon omnipotent shoulders. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weird and heavy laden, I will give you what? Rest. It's not work. You don't work. You sit, and I will serve you. Isn't that a stunning Christ? I will give you rest. He extends rich food, rich meal, his righteousness to sinners. Weary souls he strengthens, troubled ones he gives peace. Thomas Brooks wrote this, God hath in himself all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, all happiness to crown you. That is your king. He stoops so low for lowly sinners. Number three, the great response, look at verse 18 through 23. So after all this happens, she gleans in the field and she goes, it's been quite the day. I'm going to go home. So she goes home. She returns with a basket full of food, a heart full of joy. She has lots to unload and Naomi must be, I mean, just stunned. She goes, hey, just go find some work and just, you know, good luck. She comes back with like a grocery cart. That's a lot of, a lot of food. Where'd you go? Is Walmart having a sale? No, it's not that, right? Verse 19. She must have, to, I think she picked her job off the floor. Her mother-in-law said to her, and where did you glean today? Uh, honey, where have you been? Did you like rob somebody? What's all this stuff you got? Did you keep, wherever you went, keep going, please, right? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. This was just a glance. This is just his notice of her. This wasn't even, a, she's not even family with him. She just noticed her. And this is what she gets. His favor upon her. This isn't even a family. It's just, she just came for one day. Verse 19, Ruth seems to play the long story of the game. Just tell us the name. What does she do? She drags this thing out, right? The man's name with whom I work is Boaz. Just say Boaz. Right? Why she drag it out for? Oh, the man's name with whom I work today in the field, gleaning, richly. It was Boaz. Just tell the name, Ruth. Love story never ends. Tell the name, would you please? 
Verse 20, look how Naomi responds. <laughs> what kindness he's shown to you. Blessed by the Lord may he be, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She also says this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Maybe your text says one of our kinsmen, maybe a kinsman redeemer. What is that? What is, it? What is a kinsman redeemer? What is this? So if you remember, she said, oh, he's, he's in our clan. He's a relative of my husband. So he, he's also one of our redeemers. What's a redeemer? Well, I'm glad you, that you asked. Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, the Lord gives specific instructions for people in Israel who had family members and how to care for them. So kind of how Boaz is related to Elimelech. This is what Naomi's saying. She's saying, hey, he actually can be really good help because he's part of our family. So here's the rules that God gave for caring for family. If a family member was in debt and had to sell their property, the nearest kin, the nearest family who was wealthy would buy that for you give it back to you so that that property wouldn't go to like another, oh, good, we lost our property. Now our, na- our family name's gone. It's gone, right? So instead they buy it for you. They give it back to you. They redeem it for you. And then of course you pay them back. But the point is that she, they go, we'll take care of the heavy stuff. You just take it. We'll buy it back. We'll redeem it. We'll buy it back for you. Deuteronomy 25 also speaks of what Naomi was referring to, which is if you have a nearest relative who is unmarried, and in your family, you have someone who is a widow, who is childless, so no people to take care of her, no husband to fend for her. She is by herself. The nearest unmarried man would say, I will marry her. I will take care of her. I will give her a home. I will sustain her. She will have nothing to worry about. Everything will take care of. It's pro- Isn't that stunningly gracious? Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll take care of it. Now, we think it's weird. Really, you're going to marry your brother, brother, brother-in-law? But in this time, if you're a widow, you're dead. You've nothing. There's no, there's no government. Oh, just supply for government aid. That doesn't exist. Just go to a homeless shelter. It doesn't exist. You're going to die. So what do you do? You take care of your own. It's kindness. And it's not like they're like cousins. It's a relative. Okay? It's not like it's like their sister. Ruth is the poor widow who's in affliction, and she said, hey, Boaz actually... He could redeem you. He's loaded, and he can take care of you. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a bit of a situation here, isn't it? Second, there's an enduring joy. Look at verse 21, that Ruth, again, Ruth the what? Moabite. So again, remember, she's a Moabite. She's just telling you, remember, remember, remember who she is. She's a Moabite. Though a stranger, she's giving close service to Boaz, right? She says, he told me to keep close until we're finished doing this. All of harvest, she has this time to stay and to glean. Look, look at verse 22, and Naomi sees this and says, he is, he's really taking care of you. This is for your good. No one's going to harm you. Stay close. Let's say anyone touch you, but if you're doing what he says, you're going to be safe. In verse 23, she gleans until the end of not harvest, but harvest. So let's just say Boaz is very slow to pull the trigger. She's there for weeks, and he goes, I'll ask her out later. Pull the trigger, Boaz, hello, Earth to Boaz, she's right there. Marry her, right? I mean, come on, she's dying here. But she goes through harvest after harvest. She abides near him day after day after day. Free grace, free food. I mean, just work easy. We'll take care of you. Unending, enduring joy. How then does Boaz, our Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ, come to redeem helpless sinners? Well, how do we go from an outcast and a Moabite to being redeemed. Hebrews 2.14 tells you the answer. 
Since therefore the children, those whom Christ would save, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So how does Jesus redeem sinners? He has to be a kinsman. You can't just say, oh, I'll just pick that one. He does. He has to be a person. He has to enflesh himself like one of our kins, like one of us to save us. He dwelt in a body. Jesus had an actual body. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead. He becomes to us a redeemer. He buys us by dying for us. Jesus takes part of our flesh so we could partake part of his heaven. He came like one of us that we could become one of his, right? Do you, do you see the picture here? We're redeemed from the debt we owe, from our slavery to sin. The most blessed one slain for sinners. God's beloved son was slain for strangers, not for friends, but for people who even know him, who far off, just strangers and exiles, right? By turning repentance and faith, God unites us to his son, grants us the redeemer's pardon. and says, it's in your name, it's all yours, pardoned. You've been redeemed, it's all yours, right? He provides, we reap the benefits, right? We glean, he provides. He lays down his life, we are credited with his by faith. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says this, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Friends, we have seen three great glimpses of Christ. You see how he's the better Boaz? Do you understand that now? He's better. He's, not, he's better than Boaz. You, <clears throat> you need this Christ. I'll give you two brief ways to respond. If, if this is true, how should we respond? Two brief ways. Number one, caring for poor and outcast people. Um, in Deuteronomy 24, we read, again, like this divine welfare program, right? Like, don't cut the field out the corner, leave, leave people who are poor, right? Just leave it there. And those who just happen to wander in can have something to eat. Do you know why God tells them to do that? The next verse, Deuteronomy 24, verse 22. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. It's a gospel reason. Why do why do Christians need to care about poor people and widows and strangers and odd people? Because that's you. Apart from Christ, you were a stranger. You were a broken person. You were a widow. God sends Moabites our way. Friends, the gospel compels us to entreat them, to serve them, to love them, to give, to give them food and give them the gospel. God seeks strangers, so should we. So when they happen to come to our doorstep or our inboxes or phone calls or whatever, our natural response typically is, if you're like me, this is what you do. You're either very skeptical and you go, ah, he's faking it. Eh, probably faking, who cares? Or you say, just go to the homeless shelter. There's food there. Go to this government institution. There's food there. Can I be really punchy for a minute? Do you think it's helpful? Bear with me. Do you think it's helpful that a non-believer who's poor comes to me Says, hey, can I have help? No, go to a godless, Christ-hating place and get food. Do you think that's right for me to feel that way? That's what I'm saying, right? They love Christ. At least you get your belly full. Friends, I'm not saying every person you come to, you should hand out a check. It's not what I'm saying. Every time, it's not what I'm saying. But it does call for us to examine our heart, doesn't it? What good is a full belly if they died with a full hell? 
Nothing. What good does that do? But what if we help and witness to them and then they never come back? What if they just use us? Stomp their foot in our face, throw a brick through the, the window, we hate your church. What if they do that? What happens? Luke 14, Jesus says, when you have a feast, invite the poor, crippled, lame. Do you want to know why? You will be blessed. Quote, because, be, because, on purpose of, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's why. Well, with they don't come back. Doesn't really matter, according to Jesus, right? Hebrews 10, 34. What if they break our window and get angry? What if they call us a mean name? Hebrews 10, 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Whether they're needy because of laziness, sinfulness, or helplessness, our heart motivation should not be go somewhere else, there's food, go, go, scat. It should be, okay, can we evaluate? Can we give the gospel to them? Can we give them bread and the gospel? That should be our heart response. Every time, that's worth debating. It's worth discussing. But our response should be risk for the gospel is right. Lastly, abiding with Christ. Ruth would daily meet when dine with Boaz. Her heart grew in affection with him, right? She kept me with him, sitting with him, talking with him day after day, harvest after harvest. How much more should we do so with Christ? Do you sit with Christ in his word every day? Do you spend two harvests of your meal with him? Every morning you're invited to hear the king speak. Do you listen? Do you open your word and speak to you? William Gurnell said this, the Christian is bred by the word and he must be fed by it. So he must labor to eat the word. And let me encourage you with something. Reading the Bible well takes more than just one minute. Can I just be up front with you? It takes like 20 minutes sometimes, maybe an hour. I don't know. It's not one verse. Oh, now I feel better. There's times where I go, what the heck did I just read? I gotta read that again. I don't understand. I don't get it. Labor in the field of the word. Eat until you're full. Is anybody cold? Y'all cold? When you get cold, what do you do? What I do is I walk in next to the heater and I go like this. That's what I'm talking about. And I stay until I'm nice and toasty. Well, when we have cold hearts, you should stay by the word as long as it takes. How do you eat your food? Do you put food in your mouth and just swallow it? you just go like this? Swallow? Hope not. It's kind of odd, dangerous, choking hazard. What do you do? You chew. Right? When you chew the word, you, you actually taste the food. Like, oh, this tastes really good. I can chew it now. Same with reading the Bible. Don't just stand by and look at it and go, oh, it looks great. Don't just swallow it. Chew on it. Meditate it. Glean. It requires labor. Dig. Cut. Read. Expand. Meditate. Chew on it. Don't just walk away. Think about it. And it expands. You, you get all the taste of it when you eat and you chew on the word. It's been said before, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Which one are you? Ruth did not go to any other field. She stayed in his field. May we stay in Christ who satisfies. Samuel Rutherford said it well once again. We'll close. Since he looked upon me, my heart is not my own. He hath run away to heaven with it. Let's pray.